Amen. Praise God. He truly does hold it all together. Isn't that an amazing thought? What that's saying, he was saying this from out of Colossians, saying that the Lord God, that Jesus is actually in his power holding together all of the elements of creation simultaneously. That if he stopped doing that, everything would drift apart into the minor elements of creation. And so he's holding not just the creation together, but he's holding us together. He's holding our salvation together. And so we are, we're safe in him. And we're, ta- we're talking about um, King Saul. We're in the story of King Saul right now. And, and uh, last time we talked about Saul, um, it was uh, all the things that God was doing behind the scenes to bring him into the kingship. And today, uh, we're going to look at, it's going to come to the surface. Everything so far has been underground, but today people are going to get to meet Saul for the first time. And the thing is that God knows, he knows the people's hearts even better than they know their own hearts. And so he knows exactly the kind of thing that they think they want. And that's who he's going to give them. Uh, and even though when they see him, even though when they meet him this first time, they should have known better they didn't because he was exactly the kind of king that they were wanting. So now let's read, let's pick it up. Uh, it's First Samuel chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word? And now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, up, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. And so they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And then they ran, and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! And then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, you are direct with us. You speak truth to us. And sometimes we take that as harsh, Lord. And so we pray that we would help us to see that you speak truth to us in your mercy. That it's your goodness that tells us how things really are. And Lord, so I pray that you would show us ourselves in this story. But even more importantly, that you would show us 
Jesus, the true King of Israel, the righteous King who has won the victory for us, Lord. We pray that you would help us to see that and, and rejoice in it, Lord. We pray you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. There were all kinds of early warning signs that Anakin Skywalker was going to turn to the dark side. All the way right from the very beginning, Yoda sensed that his heart was riddled with fear and that that fear would end up leading to anger and the anger would end up leading to suffering. As his powers continued to develop, he became prideful, he became arrogant, he wasn't able to manage his emotions. He became obsessed, obsessed with power, even to the point of being obsessed with being able to save people from death. And his anger sent him into blind, a blind murderous rage against the Tuscan raiders. And Pad, Padme at least saw that and knew about it. The whole council knew about that. But all these were heart issues. They were inside issues. You couldn't see them. You could only sense them. And yet... Everybody knew they were there, and yet everybody, even Master Yoda, who should have known better, end up overlooking all these things because Anakin looked so good on the outside. He was so powerful. He was strong. He was tall. His force sensitivity was off the charts. He was good-looking. What more can you want in a Jedi, right? And so really, at the end of the day, everybody bought into what they thought Anakin could do for them, even though those warning signs were there. It was the same thing was true with King Saul. There are all kinds of early warning signs that said that he would eventually go south, and everyone really should have known better, but they didn't because everybody had a checklist of what they thought was going to make a good king, the king that they wanted, the king that would make them just like the nations. They had bought into the secular ideals of their age and they wanted a king who would go fight those battles to win them those victories. And so Saul checked every one of those boxes off. He was, he was strong, check. He was tall, check. He was force-sensitive. Well, maybe not force-sensitive, but he had an uncanny knack for uh, military leadership. He was good-looking. Saul was the most handsome man in all Israel, and what more could you possibly want from a king? And so really, everybody bought into that idea of what they thought Saul would be able to do for them. Uh, but what if, what if their checklist was wrong? What if our checklist about what we think a good king must be is totally off base? Like it or not, every life has a king. Every life has something that rules us. And we tend to think the things that rule us uh, need to meet certain criteria. But what if that criteria is totally wrong? What if there's a completely different criteria that makes for a good king? And as this story really plays out, that's what we're going to see. That's true. That is true. Our checklists are totally wrong. And that God in His mercy is going to speak 
really direct and almost harsh truth into the absurd ideas of the Israelites in order to show them and us the beauty of the true king. And that's really the big idea of this whole passage, that God's mercy speaks truth into our foolishness to show us the beauty of Christ. That God's mercy speaks truth into our foolishness to show us the mercy of Christ. So let's, let's go through that one little piece at a time. First, God's mercy speaks truth. A while ago, there was a guy named Neil Payne, and he set out to discover who was the greatest coach in the NBA, the National Basketball Association. And he did that. He developed this algorithm where he input all the games won, and he input all the, the, basically the talent of the players uh, to figure out... uh, he created this algorithm that would determine how many games a team should have won based on the player talent, and then he matched that against how many games they won, and what came out was most of the teams won about the same amount of games they should have based on their player talent, except for one guy, Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs. He won 117 more games than his team should have won, and there was nobody that even came close to that record. He was on basically a planet all his own. But the thing is, the thing is this, nobody, it, it was, people had a hard time processing that because Greg Popovich, his, his personality and his character is somewhere, is kind of a mix between an irritable pit bull and a volcano. If you look at, you can search Greg Popovich videos on YouTube and it's all about him just like going ballistic on players or coaches who do the wrong thing. And so it was hard to figure out how could this super old school, authoritarian, truth-speaking, hard-critiquing coach be the guy who had won all these games? How is it that he was able to bring his team to that level? And the truth is, what happened is, or what his, one of his assistant coaches said, was that he said a lot of coaches can either be, they can yell or they can be nice, but Pop does two things together. He tells you the truth straight up. And then... He'll love you to death. (laughs) And so, at practice and in games, Pop is giving this hard truth and criticism, but the context for that, behind all that, behind those scenes, is he has developed these deep personal connections with the players so that he knows that he loves him. And he's able to speak that truth into their lives. Now, why am I telling you this story about... Greg Popovich, because that's, that's what God is doing here in, this fir- in the first paragraph. It's kind of harsh how he gathers Israel together and he just tells them str- truth straight up. Um, but the context is the deep personal covenant love that he has for his people. Listen to how, listen to how Psalm, Samuel starts off the speech. Look at verse 18, the second part at verse 18 and verse 19. It says, it says Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from all the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses and have said to him, set a king over us. That's pretty harsh and pretty direct. You could see maybe some of the Israelites might have got offended by that. And God, but God does that all the time in his word. He he says in the middle of it that you have rejected your God. Straight up truth. But it's couched in the greater uh, context of his covenant with them. That he is the God uh, 
who has saved them, right? Jesus has said some of the same things about us. Some things can sound really harsh. He's Sermon on the Mount says that basically if you're angry, you're a murderer. If you're lustful in your heart, you are an adulterer. Uh, all over, it calls us sexually immoral. This one part, Jesus says, is you who are evil knows how to give your children good things. And I always stop at that point. I'm like, <laughs> he just called every, straight up everybody evil. <laughs> I wonder if anyone got offended in the crowd at that. God says direct things to us in his word. And if we didn't know the context, it would be real easy to get offended and get mad at God about how direct he is, right? But the covenant, the context is always covenant love. He is, we see in this passage, that he is the God who has delivered us from slavery and oppression. He's the God who saves us from calamities and distress. He is, is sometimes directness is really his mercy to us to build us up. And so here's what we do. We see passages like this and we think that when God speaks directly to it like this, that he's either mad at us or he's rejecting us. In this passage, we see he straight up tells the Israelites, you have rejected your God and then we add the middle term. That must mean God is rejecting them or God is rejecting us. But that's not what it means. It does not equate to God rejecting them. It is God's mercy speaking truth to them in a direct way to wake them up from, to what they're doing in the hopes of waking them up. And that's why God is so direct with us sometimes. And sometimes we need to be direct with each other to wake each other up. I got a good friend that um, over time he's decided to cash in his family, Jesus, the church, all of his best friends for his idol. It's really sad. And I had to go to him not long ago and give him some really direct truth. Really not uh, in the hopes of waking him up to what he's doing to restore him to what he's doing and instead of hearing it like that he just got really offended and took it as harsh and mean but the reality is that when we hear something like that if we hear something in the Bible like that in a sermon or some a good friend or a pastor comes to us and says something really direct that might sound harsh don't take it as an offense. Don't take it as rejection. That's God's mercy giving us truth to like wake us up from the situation that we've been overtaken in, the sin that we've been overtaken in. And that's why God starts out like that, in that harshness, but also couched in the covenantal terms of His mercy. It's not rejection. It's God's mercy speaking into their foolishness. That's the second part. Listen to their foolishness. First, God speaks truth Second part, into our foolishness. Let me to illustrate what the Israelites are doing, let me read this, I don't even know what this is, a parable, maybe a poem. It's something I found on the internet a long time ago, and I always thought this would be great for a sermon somewhere, and today's the day. So this is, uh, I'm going to call it the parable of Johnny and Sally and Billy, because I don't think it had a title to it, but here it is, the parable of Johnny and Sally and Billy. Johnny was excited to wake up today because today was the day he was going to ask Sally out on a date. He loved Sally and he knew that Sally loved him. 
He'd seen Sally just yesterday walking by the lake with Billy. They must be good friends, thought Johnny, because he knew that Sally loved him. As he sat down to breakfast and poured his alphabet cereal into milk, he was surprised to see the letters spell out Sally loves Billy in his bowl. What a strange coincidence, he thought, because he knew that Sally loved him. As he walked towards Sally's house, he noticed an airplane overhead with a giant banner that read, Sally loves Billy. That's strange, he thought. It must be another Sally, because he knew that his Sally, Sally Miller, loved him. And so he picked up a newspaper on his way to see Sally, and in the local section it announced the engagement of Sally Miller and Billy. Huh, thought Johnny. I didn't know there were two Sally Millers in town, because he knew that Sally loved him. And then finally, Johnny knocked on Sally's door, and when Billy answered, he started to get just a little bit nervous. (laughs) Now, what's Johnny doing? Johnny wants that to be true so bad. He wants the idea that he and Sally are going to be together. He wants that so badly that he's, his mind is ignoring all these obvious signs and obvious truths that what he believes to be true is not true. And that's what the Israelites are doing. There's a word for that, right? The word is confirmation bias. That we, we think, we like to think about ourselves as these rational creatures who are like Spock on Star Trek. We like operate from this perfectly rational mindset where we form our opinions and our desires and our beliefs solely based on imperial, empirical fact. And then we operate from that. But actually, that's not really true. There's one of my favorite Christian apologetics book written by a non-Christian psychologist is a book called The Righteous Mind. And in it, he proves sociologically that what really happens is we are people who are intuitive and emotional. And we have intuitive feelings about things that are right or wrong or things that we want to believe. We have emotional connections with what we want to be true. And then, step three, then we engage our rational minds to come up with logical arguments to support our emotional and intuitive beliefs, what we want to believe is true. And that is what, that's what Israel is doing in this passage. And it's, this, is, this is comedy. Let me read it to you again, verse 21 through 24. Uh, right before this, Samuel brings all Israel together and, and, and they throw lots, they cast lots. They rolled dice, and God uses that to bring out who he's picking to, to, um, to, to show his king who he's chosen to the Israelites. And this is what happens. And then Saul is chosen by Lot, but when they sought him, he could not be found. And so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hiding out in the baggage. And then they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And the Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. <laughs> see what God is doing? He's like giving this subtle like this sign. He's like, 
do you really want the guy hiding in the baggage to be your king? Is that a good sign? Somebody who's so scared of just being chosen that he's going to run and try and hide in a suitcase to get out of this? That's who you want to be your king? And then Samuel bring, when finally they go and get him, the Israelites now propping Saul up in the same way that the Philistines propped Dagon up in the temple after he had fallen. They go and get Saul, and, and Samuel, really dripping with sarcasm, says, Check him out, folks. He's the best we've got. And what do the Israelites say? What do they look at? The narrator once again highlights his physical outer appearance, and they say, Look, he's taller than all of us. He's strong. He looks like a king. He must be the king. Long live the king. And they don't even consider the fact that he was just hiding in a suitcase. That's who they want to be their king. It's supposed to be funny. The narrator, I think, really wants, it, wants us to laugh at that. Because it is funny. They've got total confirmation bias. They know what they want from a king. He wants to be, he needs to be tall, powerful, strong, and good-looking. And the heart issues do not matter to them. They don't even consider it. They want a king will make them be just like the nations. And so that's what they see. And that's what they want. And like I said earlier, everyone, every life has a king. Like it or not, every life has something that rules us. That we place there, really. You can tell what that is by noticing what your heart drifts to naturally on its own. Uh, and then we'll go out and find a king to get that thing. The king, the idol, is really the tool that we use to get what we think we need to be okay. You know, and there usually there'll be some obvious sign that, that God gives us in that, in that thing. We'll see that the train, lo- uh, train wreck of other people's lives who have pursued that idol. We might have our own experience, really. Most of us, I've probably pursued, you know, our favorite wrong kings for a little bit now, and I've already experienced a little bit of the non-payoff, the not enough syndrome. No matter what it is, if you worship money and material things, eventually those it's not going to be enough. You're going to always feel like you need more. If you worship beauty, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship your intellect and being smart, you'll always be worried about being found out that you're not so smart. All of those wrong kings, all of those idols, they all do the same thing. They don't pay off and God always, there's always obvious signs that come with them but that we ignore because we're so bought into what we think that thing is going to get for us. And God in His mercy will allow us sometimes to walk those things out to start experiencing how they don't pay off um, and here the scary thing about it really is that a lot of it is unconscious. A lot of it we don't really think through. It's vague, the things we worship. A, a natural state is to drift away from the worship of God into, into the worship of other things. And so what's the solution to that? Are we, are we doomed? Well, in secular books that talk about confirmation bias, they say, to consciously make yourself learn the other sides of the argument, to think about the 
contrast. Then spiritual things, in the spiritual life, what we're called to do is contrast the bad king with the great king to see how God's mercy speaks into our foolishness by con- and, and, and having our minds continually drawn to the attention of Jesus. Not to focus on ourselves, not to focus on the sin, not to focus on our guilt or shame, but instead direct our eyes to who Jesus really is and what He's really like. And as we do that, we're less likely to run to the emptiness of wrong kings. That's the third part. God's mercy speaks truth. The second part, into our foolishness. And the third part is so that He can show us the beauty of Christ. Look at verse 25. It says, it says Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the, of the kingship. He wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. That's probably has it probably is a copy. I'm gonna I think a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. Let me read. There's a there's a portion in Deuteronomy 17 that outlines pretty much the rights and duties of the kingship, and this is what it says. This is in Deuteronomy 17:14 through 20. It says, when you come into the land, this is God's instruction to His people, right? So it says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said you will never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes by doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now kind of boil all that down, it says three things, that the king is to practice, is to be, really is to be God's servant and the people's servant. That's the big idea of that, of that list. And, and it says for him to write not just that passage down, but the whole book of the law so that he could learn what it means to love God and to love God's people as their servant. And so it, 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 it directs him in this passage to practice humility in all those things so that he doesn't forget that fact, to not buy into wealth or buy into... Uh, the ideals of the nations around him, but instead to f- keep hard focused on the fact that he is God's servant to serve God's people. And he serves them by protecting them from evil, fighting their battles for them, and he also serves them really by keeping the law for them. As we move forward in redemptive history in the Bible, we see that more emphasis is placed on the king keeping the law as lawkeeper for his people. So, 
really the basic, those are the basic ideas. Now let's contrast how Saul is presented here. Saul is, we see, we see later that Saul loses all humility. He breaks the law every time his personal gain is threatened. But here, in this passage, we see the very, really the first real bad sign that he is refusing to protect God's people from evil. And to do that, he hides in the baggage. Rather than be placed as king over God's people with these responsibilities, he runs and he hides. He hid himself. It's really reminiscent of Adam hiding himself in the garden. Same words. He doesn't want to fight their battles, and so instead he runs away. Now let's contrast that. Contrast that with the true king. There's a, a little chunk of theology that we call Christ, Christ the victor, uh, meaning that Jesus won the victory over Satan in the battle of the cross and won salvation for us. We don't really, in our tradition, we don't really emphasize that so much. Eastern Orthodoxy really champions that cause, but it's still a legitimate part of salvation theology. It's not the whole of it. Jesus also died for our sins. Jesus also gives us his righteousness. It's bigger than just Christ the victor. But the reality is that Jesus was our champion. He did defeat Satan on the cross. We see in Colossians verses, uh, in chapter 2, 14 through 15, it says this. It says that God made alive together with him, that's us, made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in that act, it says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know what that says? It says that it says that the cross was a battlefield. The cross was the place where Jesus it was the culmination of the war in heaven where God in Christ at great cost and suffering to himself he disarmed the weapons of of the devil. He disarmed the weapons of the enemy which was their ability to accuse us as sinners and lawbreakers to God. Because that's true about us. But what Christ did on the cross was take that ability away from them by dying for our sins and by giving us His righteousness. It disarmed the devil. He could no longer justly accuse us to God. His power was taken away. And in that, in His humility, in His willingness to die for us, it seemed weak on the outside according to human standards, but it was... It was... was, spiritual power on display. That's what Jesus did for us. Even though in the Garden of Gethsemane he was literally sweating blood, his heart was troubled unto death. He said he was so anxious about what he was going into that he was sweating blood. But unlike Saul and unlike all of the little false kings we want to put over us, instead of running, Jesus ran into the battle. He came face to face with Satan and Jesus did not flinch. And in that, he defeated him on the cross and won for us our salvation, won for us liberation from this world and the fallenness of it. He won from, for us the ability to get 
away from here and, 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 and all the sadness and suffering that comes from sin in the world that we're affected by. He won for us eternal life. He won for us an eternal reality of joy in the presence of God, which is what we were created for. He didn't run. He didn't run and hide. He didn't even flinch. He stood in the gap and he defeated Satan as the good and righteous king and he gave all of that victory to us as his people. And so what that means, I think what I, what I want you to think about is that if, if Jesus fought that battle for us, if he won that battle, that won us all those things, eternal life, at the cost of his own death, is it possible that we could trust him in all the little battles of life? When we come up against our anxiety, when we come up against our insecurity, when we come up against the suffering from sin in the world, when we come up against everything that we're threatened by and that scares us and that causes us to be afraid in the world, is it possible that we could lean into Jesus and let him win those battles for us too? And the answer is yes, we can. Yes, we can. Because here's what happens. The devil's going to throw out those idols in front of you and be like, I know you're insecure. I know you are afraid. And he's going to say, one of these things is going to fix you. But we know they don't. We know they're empty. We know we come out on the other side with even more shame. In that moment, that's the moment to lean into Christ and say, Jesus Jesus is the one who won our battle and is continuing to fight for us even now. Not for victory, right? But from victory. And in that we can rest. And in that we can be assured. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for... We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus, Lord. Every day, we're going to come out of here all encouraged and tomorrow morning, the devil's going to wake us up and say, Hey, man... Let me tell you about all the things you need to be afraid about today. And then he's going to lie to us and say, and this is how it's going to make you feel better. Lord, help us to see that. We pray that you would speak directly and truthfully to us, Lord, through your word, that we would seek out those passages that call us out, Lord, and see that it's not you rejecting us, but it's your mercy speaking truth to us to help wake us up, Lord, so that we don't turn to those things that are going to cause guilt and shame and more pain down the road and instead help us to just sit tight, trust you, trust the Lord, and stand, O Israel, as you watch the Lord win the victory on your behalf. Lord, we pray you would know you're doing that for us and we pray that you would help us to lean into it that we would love you and trust you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.